1: We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
2: Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually, consciously living today. Here's your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Good morning and welcome to the Yoga Hour, a time to open our hearts and minds to the infinite. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, co-host of the Yoga Hour, and today we'll be talking about yoga in the broadest sense, not in a more limited way as just a form of exercise or perhaps stretching, but in a broad way with insights and time-tested practices for spiritually conscious living in our world today. And our topic today is what are you hungry for healing our relationship to food. We're going to be talking about food, our relationship to it, and how yoga can help us transform that relationship from suffering to compassion and hopefulness. My guest today is Sarah Joy Marsh, who is a yoga teacher and yoga therapist, has an MA in transpersonal counseling and art therapy. Sarah Joy is the author of the book Hunger, Hope and Healing: A Yoga Approach to Reclaiming Your Relationship to Your Body and Food. Committed to bridging yoga, psychotherapy and social justice, Sarah Joy Marsh founded the Daya Foundation (D.A.Y.A. Foundation), a nonprofit yoga therapy center known for its integrated approach to yoga, mindfulness and recovery. Her website is SarahJoyYoga.com. You can also find her on Facebook, Sarah Joy Marsh, and uh, a new Instagram account, Hunger, Hope, and Healing. Welcome, Sarah Joy Marsh. I'm delighted you could join me today on the Yoga Hour.
1: Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Mm
2: -hmm. So before we dive into discussing yoga, and how it can help us in our, with our relationship to food, let's start with a yoga moment, a moment of meditation.
0: Om.
1: So wherever
2: we are and whatever we're doing, let's just start by bringing our attention to our body, Feeling our body as it is perhaps sitting still or moving. If you're walking, feeling your feet on the ground. If you're sitting, feeling your body being supported in a chair or perhaps on the floor. Just feeling, feeling your body supported in space. And then taking a moment to bring your attention to your breath. Wonderful tool. It's always with us and we can pay attention as we inhale and exhale, not trying to change the rhythm of our breathing, just noticing its natural flow, cool air entering the nostrils and warm air flowing out. Let's imagine, with each inhale, we can dive within. And with each exhale, we can relax. This allows us to drop our energy down into our heart. Again, just noticing, noticing our breath. In this moment, As we dive within, as we center our attention in our heart, we become aware of the essence. Our essence has qualities, including being peaceful, joyful, and present. And just by noticing, we can rest in this essence of our being. We can notice thoughts and feelings as they arise. We realize we can watch them as they pass away. Just staying with that presence, we become aware of our essential nature beyond words and thoughts, beyond all change, beyond sensation, pure existence being and feel the peace that emanates from the essence of our being and allow it to pervade the mental field the emotional nature and the physical body we abide in this peace and let it overflow as blessing for all beings everywhere Oh. Once again, Sarah Joy Marsh, welcome to the Yoga Hour. I'm so delighted to have you as a guest on the show. I've really been enjoying reading your book, Hunger, Hope, and Healing, A Yoga Approach to Reclaiming Your Relationship to Your Body and Food. And I wanted to ask you, how did you first become interested in working with this topic?
1: Well, it's really from direct personal experience, actually. My early years included my own disordered eating patterns, which was comprised of anorexic behaviors, binge-eating behaviors, compulsive exercising, compulsive restricting, and just a chronic underlying sense of not good enough, of the self-improvement project that I would never actually accomplish because Mm -hmm. the goal kept moving farther and farther away. So I would say my journey into this topic was really initiated by my own pain and suffering. Yeah. The discovery that yoga could be helpful was a totally spontaneous thing. I wasn't seeking yoga. Perhaps it was seeking me. But I didn't even know it existed when I discovered that stretching and breathing and moving my body in this particular catalytic event, which was at the top of a mountain I had hiked up, that combination of the awe of nature, the fatigue of hiking, and then the willingness to move my body in a more loving way, that turned out to be the catalyst for yoga for me. And I didn't even know at that moment it was going to be the on-ramp to my recovery. It was just a few minutes of relief. And then I I found that I was more interested in coming back to that than I was in continuing to shame myself. So it slowly took over my recovery I would say is yoga based. Yeah, I,
2: I enjoyed um, you know your reading about your experience, you know, on that hike and going to the mountaintop and kind of spontaneously, you know, beginning um, to practice what you real didn't even know at the time was uh, was yoga. So it was um, it was uh, fortuitous for us all that you uh, I mean, uh, that you did that because the work so. that you've done is really is uh, very cool. So I love the this, question I that question that you ask was, in your book and in workshops. What are you hungry for? And I love the way that it really expands our idea of hunger and satiety beyond food, which is the obvious, you know, what are what are you hungry for? But you talk about so many other things that we have, you know, hunger for. Um, so how has asking this question, what are you hungry for, how has that been helpful to your clients and students?
1: Yeah, well, when we're lost in the process of a disordered eating routine, whatever that might be, it's incredibly preoccupying. So we have this haunt, as it were, that we're driven for food or the restriction of food or a body composition management strategy. And we actually don't realize that deeper hungers stimulated the the urge to satisfy something. And so when I ask my students and and, um, clients this question, First of all, it opens up their awareness that they're hungry for something beyond food. And the way that we can first ask the question is, how is food helping? So if food is causing soothing, perhaps we're hungry for soothing. If food Mm -hmm. is causing adventure, perhaps we're hungry for adventure. If Mm -hmm. restricting food and trying to compulsively manage your body composition is offering, let's say, control, control is not one of our underlying hungers. But it represents needs for safety. So we may mm-hmm. be hungry for safety or stability or consistency, or we might have a hunger for uh, predictability, which we can't really accomplish in this life, but we can set up things that are more stable than our out of balance, chaotic relationships to food.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So it's a real question that everybody has to ask of themselves, but asking it in a group context has been more potent than trying to ask it by ourselves.
2: Mm. Yeah, and I, I loved, too, you know, the, um, you know the, the width of everything that you listed, you know, in terms of, you know, what could you be hungry for? You know, cre- creativity, you know, spirituality, connection, you know, to something, you know, larger than ourselves. I mean, all of these things are things that we have a hunger for.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yes, deeply. Uh, we have hungers through our senses to experience the world in its beauty, its awe, and its mystery, but we don't get that hunger satiated if our senses are overwhelmed by food disorders and other addictions that are so prevalent in our culture right now.
2: Right, right. So you wrote your book to help people who have a, a wide range of disordered eating patterns, um, including, you know, on you know, one end, just dieting. You know, people who are just, you know, trying to, you know, diet and control their food intake in that way. And then going the, you know, the full spectrum, including the more, you know, recognizable eating disorders that you mentioned, you know, bulimia or anorexia. So, how do you define a disordered relationship to food?
1: Yeah, I think it's actually widespread in our culture. So, I might be touching some soft spots for people who don't realize that I'm talking to them until this moment when you ask the question. Because a disordered relationship to food, let's say in contrast, a healthy relationship to food is food is here to nourish my brain and my body, and in the sense of yoga, it's to nourish my brain and body for the purpose of my practice and my studies and my relationships and health and harmony. When that goes out of balance, what we see on a continuum is even as innocent as another diet, which turns into chronic yo-yo dieting, Mm -hmm. or as innocent as little bit of stress eating here and there, reaching for the candy dish in the office and thinking that's sort of benign and okay because for a few minutes you have some uh, adventure in your mouth, the taste, the sugar, whatever it might be. And then as far down the spectrum as what's consistently preoccupying, reinforcing a message of body hatred or body dissatisfaction, and even deeper than that, the strategies of bulimia and anorexia and uh, binge eating and binging and purging, which is both done through vomiting in the form of bulimia, but also with laxatives and compulsive exercise. Right. But it can be on the spectrum. How preoccupying is it, and how much does it reinforce the message of body dissatisfaction?
2: Mm-hmm. No, I thought that was that was really you know helpful and and certainly recognize myself in some things you know of you know trying to be on a diet and the bargaining that you can go through oh, I just went on a walk, you know, a really long walk, or I just had a really good, you know, hard exercise session, I can have that brownie, you know, (laughs) that that I have a desire for. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that that bargaining back and forth, and, you know, I can can just this one time, and then tomorrow, you know, or later today, it'll be different.
1: Yeah, that's a very common broadcast for most of my students. And by by Mm -hmm. broadcast, I mean like the radio station in their mind. that this bargaining is happening, so is body comparison and calorie counting and doing math to see how it's going to turn out for their body composition. Mm
0: -hmm. And I've
1: I've said to my students, it's no longer calories in, calories out, even in our culture. That's not how we're defining health or uh, coming to your natural body composition. We're not counting calories anymore. We're looking at nutrients, minerals, Mm -hmm. the substances that help the brain and body function better. So... The stress response is diminished, and a health response can be initiated.
2: Mm-hmm. So, I really appreciated in your book how you describe these disordered relationships that we have, we often have to food, as something that began, oftentimes when we were very young, as a way to provide relief and to temporarily soothe us. So, um, how does looking at our behaviors from this perspective help us?
1: Yeah, when I discovered this in my own life, and as I share it with yoga students and clients, one of the most important things is a profound sense of relief that we aren't stupid. Mm, I mean, the numbers of times people have told me they know they should not be doing what they're doing, but they can't stop doing it. It's become compulsive and reflexive. Reflexive is different than reflective. Reflexive is like on the reflex of doing it again, it triggers itself. So when we realized that we needed soothing or safety or predictability, even as a small child, we also needed connection, we needed assurance, we needed to see and be seen. Some some of those needs weren't getting met. To soothe the pain of that, it turns out for many people food worked. Food became a friend food became a companion. It became a way to numb the difficulty as experienced in the body and the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And once it works, it'll work again. And then we start repeating that behavior that was working just enough to cause relief. And then we keep doing it until now it becomes something that we don't have control over. It has more control over us. Mm -hmm. So the sense that we're not actually... Stupid or broken or flawed that this thing has taken over because our brains actually do that in the search for soothing. That's been such a huge relief to myself and my students worldwide. It gives us a a new perspective to see how recovery is launched, not from shame and not from once more trying to outrun the feeling that we're broken, but really from an inner place of love and acceptance.
2: Mm. That's just what you you were saying. It's so hopeful you know, it's just a really hopeful, you know, perspective. So you describe yoga as providing a new lens through which to examine our disordered eating patterns. And you made two distinctions that were really helpful to me. So the first one is that yoga does not come from a deprivation or reward mentality. So what do you mean by this deprivation reward mentality?
1: Yeah, that's really speaking to the diet culture that we live in. And it's right. more than in um food diets in our culture. This sort of if I'm depriving myself enough and I've been successful enough, whether that's I was successful for an hour or a day or a week or a month, then I deserve a reward. Similar as what you were saying about you exercised a certain amount or you went for a certain long walk and then you deserved something as a reward.
2: Right.
1: So In the deprivation reward mentality is also black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking, good, bad thinking. And yoga does not fundamentally come from this view. It comes from a perspective that there's an already existing wholeness, wisdom, and love to which we belong and from which we are springing forth. That isn't divisive. It doesn't compartmentalize. It's a kind of warm welcome to all that is and all that we are. Mm -hmm. Of course, the heart needs the fortitude for that. To accept all that we are includes our sorrows and our disappointments, as well as our celebrations and our uh, heroic moments. Mm -hmm. But when we get into deprivation reward mentality, we're, we're walking a much thinner line, and we're prone to failing, and then trying to increase the vigilance with which we go back to deprivation, and then we increase the need for the reward. Because The brain itself does not want to be starved, and by this I mean from calories but also nutrients, and the brain doesn't want to be starved from that wider view of all that we are and all that is. So then the rebellion comes. We push against our own deprivation, trying to get out of the constricted model that that is. And that rebellion I actually call healthy, even though people feel like they just broke their diet, they're yeah. rebelling against an internal regime that's not helping them. And wanting freedom is a really important deep drive in the human psyche, which I think yoga is very adept at helping us with.
2: Mm. No, it's really, uh, really beautifully uh, put. So obviously yoga offers that different perspective by not buying into that black or white thinking um, And, you know, I, of course, have experienced this myself, you know, of just any time that you, you know, sort of set your mind to something and then you, you know, you fail, there is a lot of negative self-talk, you know, that goes along, that goes along with that. And as you have pointed out, yoga really doesn't come from that place. Yoga comes from, you know, that, that underlying wholeness, that, that wholeness that, that is already present within us that we just need to access. Uh, It's, you know, what you most desire. It's already here. It's already within you. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So the second way that you point out that yoga provides a new lens is in how it views the process of change. And I particularly really enjoyed this. So let's talk about this. What is our cultural concept of how change occurs?
1: (laughs) Change occurs if we just work hard enough if we just put more rubber on the road or pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, if we just have more willpower, we're going to change. Except that trying to change from that vantage point is trying to change from shame, which can never be truly motivating for us to transform ourselves because shame is inherently a protective mechanism trying to keep us from taking a risk.
0: Mm.
1: when, When we look at addiction in the U.S. and the models for addiction treatment, Most of them include a perspective that if the client had more willpower, they would be getting out of this difficulty. Mm -hmm. And in yoga, I like to shift it to this understanding of our willingness to be transformed by an underlying intelligence that's already in our bodies, magnetically wants to pull us towards what yoga calls ananda, that is the inner sense of love and belonging. And that if we were to allow that to surface, which requires some measure of courage because our culture doesn't line up with this view, but as we allow that to happen, we revive our faith in ourselves as someone who can be transformed and who can take the steps of transformation. Mm -hmm. And when we're reviving that and seeing it happen, we experience more hope about the process, which is why hope is the second word in the title of the book. Mm
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one of the things that I really most appreciated about your discussion of this is your, um, the beautiful metaphor actually you use to describe creating a quote unquote skill panel, which is based on the sound panel from a recording studio. And I loved this metaphor. I just thought it was so helpful because when you look at the way that you just described this, how our culture views the process of change, it really encourages that black or white thinking. You know, that either, yeah. you know, I have all this willpower and I'm controlling these behaviors and I'm a good person, uh, and, or, you know, um, when the inevitable failure happens, you know, you slip into the negative self talk. So, can you describe the skill panel for us?
1: Yeah, this is such a helpful realization for me in my recovery because I was looking at recovery as if I could just get rid of these behaviors,
0: mm-hmm. and I had
1: no idea what new skills I needed. Right. And so if you look at a sound panel and the highest volume knob on the sound panel is addiction or disordered eating or self-control or self-hatred or the whole complex of what that is, most of my clients have just thought, if I could only pull that button down and silence it forever, I would be free. The mm-hmm. difficulty is that we've overused this behavior as our primary life skill. So if we want to pull that down out of circulation from our uh, self-soothing strategies and we haven't yet developed other skills, we will feel (laughs) skillless, which is terrifying. So the other skills on the the sound panel are what I call these essential life skills for recovery, but also for life itself. And I think we'll be talking about those life skills. So I'll just say one more thing about the the sound panel is yoga teaches abhyasa and varagyam an intense commitment to something nourishing in a good direction and the surrender of that which would get in the way. And the mm-hmm. sound panel is like moving the volume knobs to increase the beneficial and decrease the difficult kind of simultaneously so we come into greater balance. We don't have to condemn any part of ourselves along the way.
2: Mm-hmm. The reason I love this is just it allows for so much more complexity than just, you know, if you can imagine just one volume knob, you know, so here's this one volume knob, you know, that we have for this behavior, and the, you know, kind of mental images, all you can do is turn it up or turn it down. Right. And yeah. a sound panel, if anyone has you know, been in a recording studio, you you know, you describe it in your book. Of course, it has I don't know how many. I mean, it has, you know, 20, 40, however many knobs and they all have these volume, you know, things and they use it to balance the sound coming from different mics, et cetera. And it's such a great, you know, such a great metaphor. Not only are you trying to like turn something down, which is an unwanted behavior, but you're also trying to turn these other things up you know, which are the wanted behaviors. Uh, And I just thought it was just a really, really lovely metaphor.
1: Thank you. It's one of the most inspiring parts of hunger, hope, and healing for my students. They realize even a nudge in a small direction is like a huge success because it's a nudge not in the other direction, (laughs)
2: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And if we're not being successful at turning down, you know, a, a, a vo- the volume knob on a behavior that we, you know, would like to reduce, perhaps it's because we don't have it yet balanced with these other life skills, which, again, yeah. I think is such a hopeful, such a hopeful way of, of viewing it rather than this all or nothing, just this one sound knob. You know, we've got all these other things yeah. that we can work with. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we when we come back from the break, we are going to be talking about those other, as you describe them, you know, life capacities that we will be able to, uh, you know, then turn the volume knob up on, uh, while we're trying to turn the volume knob down on a particular um, way that we're relating to food that we want to change. You're listening to the Yoga Hour with special guest Sarah Joy Marsh, who is a yoga teacher, yoga therapist and author of the book we're discussing today, Hunger, Hope, and Healing. You can find out more about Sarah Joy's book and her teaching schedule at her website, SarahJoyYoga.com, and I should mention it's S-A-R-A-H, Joy, J-O-Y, SarahJoyYoga.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us at YogaHour at Unity.FM. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, co-host of the Yoga Hour. When we come back from the break, we'll be exploring more about these new capacities. We'll be right back.
0: Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Unity Online Radio is bringing the
2: message of unity to thousands of spiritual seekers around the world. If you enjoy our programming, we invite you to support it by visiting unityonlineradio.org and clicking on Donate Now. Help us continue to provide inspiring content to everyone. Thank you for your support.
0: Confucius said that to be wronged is nothing unless you continue to remember it. If we can let our past remain in the past, we are not compelled to endlessly reenact it. If we seek to understand the situations in the other person's life and put forth the effort to walk a mile in his shoes, we may be less quick to take offense at what may be directed toward us. Understand that forgiving does not mean excusing, but dwelling on past slights or offenses can never help us grow. Unforgiveness always diminishes us. An African proverb says, The one who forgives ends the quarrel you can be a powerful agent for healing. Let go of old hurts. Let the past be the past. Forgive.
1: This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org.
0: Take some time to relax and tune into spirit with Reverend Paulette Pipe and Touching the Stillness. Every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Central, join Paulette for a soul-stirring meditation that will leave you energized and inspired.
1: Tune in and connect with listeners around the world in affirmative prayer. Not your everyday radio show. Touching the Stillness will help you bring new meaning and clarity to your life. Find Paulette on Facebook and listen each week right here at Unity
2: Online Radio. Call now with your question or comment, 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. You're listening to The Yoga Hour, living the eternal way with your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome back to The Yoga Hour. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, co-host of The Yoga Hour, and my guest today is Sarah Joy Marsh. She is the author of the book we're talking about today, Hunger, Hope, and Healing. You can find out more about Sarah Joy and her work at her website, sarahjoyyoga.com. So Sarah Joy, let's get back to this idea of a skill panel. And I really loved the four essential life skills that you encourage us to build as a way to increase our capacity to change our behavior patterns. Um, That's we were talking about at the end of the first half hour. Um, So these life skills use our body sensations and responses as tools to really help us learn. So how can bodily responses help us learn?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. I really appreciate it because so much of our culture thinks in uh, constructive, cognitive, intellectual ways to heal or to transform ourselves, but the body has to be included. Our body houses every memory that's unresolved for us. And so long as it's housing that, we are listening for signals to come forward that give us guidance. But sometimes our gut instinct has been blunted by what we're still holding and then by the behaviors we created to soothe the pain of what we're holding. So in the practice of yoga, one of the things that's happening is body memory, without need of cognition or narrative or you know, intellectual effort, body memory is being transformed from patterns of holding or constriction into patterns of ease and availability. Mm. I don't mean that everyone's hamstrings become more flexible, but that the body, <laughs> we of <wish>. the whole <laughs> ecosystem, no. like this whole ecosystem becomes more pliable. We call yeah. it in interpersonal neurobiology more elastic or more plastic. And when that's occurring, the sensations that start to come through are different than the sensations of holding. They're like sensations of vitality or possibility or aliveness or freshness. And sometimes those sensations are quite surprising. And the sensations of going back to constriction or dullness or lethargy or urgency or anxiety, they're so familiar. But through the practice of yoga, we start discerning that sensations are signaling us about different body and mind states. It's like opening up your Crayola crayon box to have dozens of colors, not just red, blue, and yellow. There are many ways the body intelligence is giving us information in even in any one moment.
2: Hmm. Well, that's that's uh that's really lovely and and I do think there is obviously in our culture such a separation, you know such a body mind you know separation as though they're separate you know <laughs> so, yeah. as though they aren't in the same place. so uh, the first skill that you mention is getting in the gap g a p uh, and yeah. GAP is an acronym for grounding, attention, and presence. But that gap, it's a lovely way of describing it, it's a great acronym, because it's also the space between our thoughts, that gap. So what do you mean by getting in the gap?
1: Yeah, so back to the sense that our culture tries to think its way through stuff with constructs and cognition and intellect, we're kind of overthinking it, actually. And most of our thoughts are driven by some kind of anxiety or fear that we haven't identified, and they keep repeating themselves. So for people coming to meditation practice, for example, they often feel like it's very crowded in their head, and the voices don't stop. The narrative keeps going. They've also got this misperception that somehow they're going to blank their mind, which is a misunderstanding of meditation. We're not likely to blank the mind. (laughs) However, we can start listening to that which isn't thought, That which isn't history repeating itself in our heads. That which isn't planning the future or reviewing the past. To do that, yoga says in the Yoga Sutras, to place your attention on one thing called the object of attention. I like to call that getting grounded. Finding a place for grounding your attention in the present moment. Mm -hmm. And then we have to keep paying attention. So we don't just choose the object for attention. Now we have to wield attention in the form of concentration which yoga calls dharana, so concentrating, attending, attending, and attending again to this chosen object, we are less hijacked by our thoughts, and our brain chemistry starts to shift to becoming present. And we experience our own presence, larger than our personal identity, as resting in the larger force of that which we might call presence itself, We have to start with choosing the object of attention, which isn't the calories you just consumed and the mortifying feeling you have about your body having done that. The Mm. objects of attention are chosen through our senses because they're primary to how we interpret the world and how we've been interpreting it since we were in utero. Mm. And if our senses have a high level of interpretation about the world as unsafe or uh, unwelcoming, we're going to start creating thoughts about that as well. And then our narrative is based more in shame than presence. So this getting in the gap is to slice through that process and to experience ourselves through the senses and through the body as being welcomed by life.
2: Mm. And I thought, you know, in addition to talking about it, which we've been doing, it would be wonderful to actually have an experience of it. So would you lead us through a simple exercise that gives us that experience of getting in the gap?
1: Yeah, certainly, yeah. So we use those senses, and therefore we choose different objects of attention. The one I'm going to recommend we use is actually sound, and the space in which sound is happening, because listeners are listening to us on the radio right now. So wherever anybody happens to be, you're welcome to close your eyes. Of course, unless you're driving, close your (laughs) eyes otherwise. Or bring your gaze down and in. So your eyes will be less distracted. We turn the sense of sight inward. And bring attention to your ears, recognizing that at this moment your ears will register whatever sounds are emerging in your environment. And let your attention simply notice sound as it's occurring, without needing it to be different, a sound arises and dissolves without us coordinating nor controlling it. As you listen to sound, keep connecting your mind the simplicity of receiving sound. Some sounds will be more pleasant, others non-pleasant. We welcome them all. Listen with a kind of keen attention that welcomes the rising and the passing of sound. and start to sense also the immense space in which sound is moving. The space beyond sound. The space beyond our own thoughts and our sense of separateness. To listen like this to the freshness of the present moment We recognize life is coming towards us, already welcoming us. And if the mind wanders away from sound, we just kindly come back to sound as a reminder of the tangible present moment into which we come home to ourselves. For a few moments more, listen to the sounds as they're rising and passing in the large space beyond sound and thought. And then in closing this meditation, take a moment to feel how your brain and body respond when you imagine that countless others were just practicing with you listening to sound, and the space beyond sound, wherever they happen to be on the planet. And then to shift from this shared practice, you might bring your hands together at your heart, acknowledge the efforts you were making, and appreciate the sense of hearing for something that can bring you again into the present moment at any point during the course of this day. And then you may release your hands and come back into awareness of Laurel and I here in the conversation.
2: Well, Sarah Joy, thank you for that. That was just really, really beautiful and, and uh, really gave a, a glimpse of the process, as you describe getting in the gap. What I appreciate about having a regular practice of meditation in whatever form people practice, is that um, the more that you are able to build those muscles of paying attention, of bringing your attention to something in the meditation you just did, bringing our, the attention to our ears, bringing the attention to sound, and that which is beyond sound, it just opens up this really beautiful, rich space. And gets easier the more and more accessible to you the more that you practice yeah.
1: it's much like any other muscle you know none of us <clears throat> excuse me as a human none of us remembers learning to walk or learning to talk we also don't remember having our baby teeth come in and the pain that we experienced we don't remember those learning curves because we didn't have the capacity for memory when they were occurring and sometimes we get frustrated with ourselves about our learning process in meditation or yoga, and we forget the courage we are right now undergoing to try this on. <laughs> and I like to reference baby teeth learning to walk and learning to talk as a time when our body just knew it was going to make efforts to get through this learning curve in life.:
2: Right, And overcome you know and learning to the process of learning to walk. we've all I mean certainly I don't remember that you know myself, but I've watched you know, children learning to walk, and there's a lot of falling in there. There's a lot, there's yeah. a lot of not being successful at walking. And like you just mentioned, just an undaunted uh, continuing, you know, continuing on yeah. a drive to continue on. So the second essential life skill that you encourage us to build in your book is called getting comfortable feeling uncomfortable. So what do you mean by this? What do you mean by getting comfortable, feeling (laughs) uncomfortable?
1: Yeah, we actually, lifelong and culture-wide, planet-wide, we need this skill, the skill of getting comfortable, feeling uncomfortable. Because I would say, particularly here in the West, I've traveled a lot internationally and I go back to India on a regular basis to to be with my teachers. So I can see that here in the West, we have the privilege of shifting from discomfort pretty regularly regularly. We can change the lighting in our room. We can change the temperature. We can change the temperature in one car seat over another. We have many ways to manage our discomfort, and we are promoted to do that by our consumeristic culture. Just get out of discomfort and everything will be better. It doesn't help us to develop a life skill, though, where actually when you travel in the world and you travel on the spiritual journey, discomfort is going to arise as an invitation to grow, not to control yourself or your environment. So getting comfortable feeling uncomfortable is both getting comfortable feeling the discomfort of growth, and by that I mean the discomforts of joy, optimism, elation, contentment, relief. For many of my students and clients, to feel those qualities is frightening because what will they do when the discomfort comes back? And how will they manage being someone who's not caught up in their addiction? I mean, it was scary for me to feel joy. The first few times I was like, whoa, my body is experiencing what I might call joy. And there's no apparent catalyst for experiencing this state of joy right now. It wasn't because I had accomplished something. It wasn't that I was getting a reward in graduate school. There was no apparent catalyst. And there I was, feeling expansive and joyful. And I realized, It was terrifying, Mm -hmm. but that I would have to get comfortable with that sensation if my recovery was going to continue, because, in fact, I felt that way since I'd been having some relief from my self-harm behaviors. There was a catalyst. It was just this slow accumulation of lessening the self-harm and increasing my mindful presence. And there I was, feeling elated. At other times in my recovery and on other people's journey of recovery, the discomfort will be as the body unearths an unresolved grief or a difficult memory. And we'll want to be able to tend to the discomfort of that memory with a lot more compassion and kindness. In yoga poses, people are oriented to sensing if it's hurting, they must be doing the pose right. Mm. Well, sometimes... If it's hurting, it means the body's giving information about how we contend to ourselves more wisely. And other times, a yoga pose is not quite so painful. It's a place of contentment. And we want to get comfortable with that as a possibility also. This whole spectrum of getting comfortable feeling, we could have ended the phrase getting comfortable feeling, but Mm -hmm. feeling uncomfortable is so stimulating for the addictive process that I added the word uncomfortable to the phrase. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm-hmm. So how can this skill of getting comfortable feeling uncomfortable help us in our efforts to change our relationship to food?
1: Yeah, so this, is, I'll speak very specifically about this, particularly in case there's any listeners who are struggling right now. Uh, because for many of us, just to get comfortable feeling hunger or satiation is like a tremendous effort. We've been overriding the instinct to feel our hunger or to acknowledge our satiation, the brain's been overriding that because the biochemistry has been on stress and protection for such a long time. So if we even just use getting comfortable, feeling uncomfortable, to sit down with food and to eat a little slower with more mindfulness and more appreciation that food is being offered to us and that our body can be nourished. Already, some of your listeners are feeling uncomfortable about this proposal. Mm. And yet, that's, that's where we bring our yoga in. You know, Downward Dog wasn't easy the first time either. We, so we bring in this mindful awareness from getting in the gap and we watch ourselves feeling a little timid about welcoming this food or feeling the taste and the texture on the tongue and then noticing our body take in the food as nourishment and love. And then feeling satiation start to occur slowly. And recognizing what fullness feels like. And then accepting that we've eaten a meal intended to nourish our bodies. And going through that whole spectrum, for some of our listeners right now, that is a huge learning curve especially if we've been binging or mindlessly eating or stress eating or emotional eating. Slowing down to notice that eating is happening is a a significant opportunity. For others, it's getting comfortable feeling that our body is actually tired and needs to rest. We don't need more food at night. We might need to go to bed. Or in the morning, that the body has a need for movement. And we might feel uncomfortable with movement if we've been stagnating, if we've been lethargic. So the first couple of times that we start moving and breathing, the musculoskeletal body is like grateful but also apprehensive if it's become unfamiliar to do it. So for all of this that will become the unfamiliar at first, getting comfortable feeling uncomfortable helps us to establish self-care, self-nurturance as more and more familiar And one of the things we do seek, when you asked earlier in our conversation, what are you hungry for, we seek safety in the form of the familiar. We seek consistency. We seek rhythm and regulation. So if that which is right now dysregulated is going to be addressed, we have to know how to feel the discomfort of addressing it until it comes back into balance with our body intelligence.
2: Mm and I, I should mention that for each of these life skills you have wonderful exercises in the book i appreciated the one for uh, uh, feeling comfortable or getting uncomfortable i sorry getting comfortable getting feeling comfortable uncomfortable. Feeling uncomfortable, i appreciated yeah. the exercise because what you do it's it's a simple hamstring you know stretch in yoga but then alternating with um er, you know the areas in your body that where there's neutral sensation so, you know, for example, feeling, you know, where your body is, is uh, supported, you know, by the floor or what have you. So anyway, for each thing that we're talking about, just know that there's another wealth of information in the book. Um, the Thank next you. essential skill you encourage us uh, to, to develop is moving from love, not shame. So say more about this. What do you what do yeah, you mean when you really say moving from love, not shame?
1: Yeah. So shame is not essentially capable of motivating us. As I was saying earlier, it's a protective mechanism, and it doesn't want us to take a risk. And most of my clients, in fact, I can't think of anybody that I worked with who didn't have some difficulty with shame, myself included. And I think, you know, pervasive in human nature. that Shame has been widely misunderstood. It's it's, um, misused as an effort to discipline or punish ourselves to become better people. Moving from love, not shame, means coming into the view that yoga has of us, that we aren't right now broken, we are not right now flawed, we are not right now in need of fixing, and were we to come back to an indwelling sense of ananda, quite from within there, quite naturally, our evolving and our development would occur. People are afraid that if they stop shaming themselves, as their basic form of motivation, they're going to stop trying to improve who they are. But moving from love rather than shame, the inner intelligence of the heart, the mind, and the body wants to actually keep evolving. I've seen this so many countless times that we become more and more courageous, heartful, loving, graceful when we're not under the pressure of the regime of shame.
0: Mm.
2: I think this is a particularly, you know, welcome message. Um, I just feel that that this really permeates our culture. This feeling that shame, you know, if you're if we're not making yourself feel ashamed, you know, that you're not going to grow. <laughs> so I really appreciate yeah. that. So unbelievably, we've almost come to the end. We've got another one or two minutes. So I wanted to give you a chance to to share some last words. So in closing, what words of inspiration or encouragement would you like to share with our listeners?
1: Well, for anybody listening for whom either our discussion or those meditations lit up something in your psyche or your body, I would say be heartened that the instinct in you for recovery is very much alive, even if the behaviors have been storm-like as of late, even if the behaviors have been with somebody for 30 years. Some of my clients come to me after 40 years of bulimia, and I still feel the spark in each of us that wants to experience wholeness and love and grace, it is available, hidden under difficulties that haven't yet had enough attention, attunement, or kindness to heal. And our bodies are a part of the healing journey, so we need to start warmly welcoming the body into the process and not condemning it. And I'm honored to help people with this process because my recovery is so solid it's so um, trustworthy, and I want people to feel the same as possible for them.
2: And that brings us to um, kind of back to the hopefulness we were talking about at the beginning, you know, that hopefulness um, of he- healing and also knowing that it's, you're already whole, that, you know, there's something within you that is already healed, and you're, So you're healing the rest of you um, in, in wholeness. So yeah. with that, we've come to the end of the show. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, co-host of The Yoga Hour, and we've been discussing What Are You Hungry For? Healing Our Relationship to Food with our special guest, Sarah Joy Marsh, author of the book we've been discussing, which is called Hunger, Hope, and Healing, Sarah Joy is a yoga teacher, yoga therapist, and founder of the Daya Foundation, D A Y A Foundation, a nonprofit yoga therapy center known for its integrated approach to yoga, mindfulness, and recovery. You can find out more about Sarah Joy at her website, sarajoyyoga.com. Again, Sarah with an H. You can also find her on Facebook, Sarah Joy Marsh, and on the new Instagram, Hunger, Hope, and Healing. Thank you once again, Sarah Joy, for joining us today.
1: You're so welcome. It's been my pleasure.
2: Join us next week for an encore episode of Awaken Your Heart, a program from June 7th of this year. To awaken our heart is to embody the divine love and joy that is part of our soul nature. Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, director of the Yoga Hour, joined me and shared poetry and practices that can open our hearts And deepen our ability for love and compassion. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. CSE welcomes people from all backgrounds who are seeking self and God realization, a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. For more information about the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment and both the on site programs and the online programs visit csecenter.org remember to subscribe to the yoga hour podcast at itunes or stitcher and if you are enjoying the program tell a friend about it thank you to the yoga hour team regular host founder and director of the yoga hour yogacharya o'brien assistant producers ann hayes and sean smith cse's global media outreach manager holly gray and Jeff Comfort and Louis Pagan in the sound booth at unity.fm. I look forward to being with you again while Yogacharya O'Brien is away. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.